Good morning. Uh, glad to have you here on a cel- Decatur Celebration uh, Weekend. Hopefully, uh, you've uh, had a good time this weekend. Ate something on a stick, you know, whatever, whatever you're into, sort of thing. Uh, I'm just going to do you. I'm just going to do you a solid right now. And if you're going to the celebration like today, um, you're going to thank me later. But you want to go to the ice cream uh, cookie sandwich booth and, and get yourself one, uh, a chocolate chip or a peanut butter. Um, you'll thank me later. You'll praise God. You'll be happy. Um, it, it'll be a good day for you. So just do that forthwith. I will never lie to you about Jesus or food. Go do it. I'm telling you right now. Um, it's, it's, it's worth it. All right. Uh, so we're, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, this is, uh, we'll talk about this more as the message unfolds, but uh, this week and next week, uh, we're going to be talking about eldership and leadership, and it's just the time of the year where uh, we like to do that. And somebody sent me a list uh, a couple years ago, and this is admittedly kind of uh, Bible nerd humor, but th- that's okay because I am indeed a Bible nerd, and uh, um, I'm happy for that. So, um, but this is about if uh, a church were trying to hire like biblical leaders uh, uh, throughout the Bible, uh, Bible leaders, um, what what are some reasons that those leaders from the Bible might be rejected. Like take Adam, for instance. A search team, if he were interviewing to, to be on staff at a church or an elder, they might say he has, he's a good man, but he has problems with his wife. One reference told us how he and his wife enjoyed walking naked through the woods, right? Or Noah, right? His former pastorate was 120 years with absolutely no converts, and he's prone to unrealistic building projects, right? Or Joseph, he's a big thinker, but he's kind of a braggart. He believes in dream interpreting and he has a prison record. Um, Moses, he's a modest and meek man, but he's a poor communicator. He even stutters at times. Sometimes he blows his stack and he acts rashly in business meetings. Some say he left an earlier church on a murder charge, right? Um, David, the most promising leader of all until we discovered he had an affair with his neighbor's wife. Solomon, great preacher, but serious women problems. Uh, Jonah, he told us he was swallowed by a great fish. He said the fish later uh, spat him on a shore near here. We just hung up. Um, So powerful. Paul is a powerful CEO and fascinating preacher. However, he's short on tact. He's unforgiving of young ministers. He's harsh, and he's been known to preach all night long. And then Jesus. Hmm. Has pet, he's been popular at times. He once grew his church to 5,000, and he managed to offend them all, and his church dwindled down to only 12 people. He seldom stays in pl- one place for very long, and of course, he's single. Um, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, not, not just in terms of church leadership. I'm kind of thinking just culturally right now, but are we more mean than we used to be? Right? Are we more critical? Are we more... Harsh? Are we more critical of leadership than we than we used to be? And I, I don't know. My, my answer to that is, I don't think we're uh, necessarily more critical of leadership than than we used to be. If you ever get a chance, you want to go to the Abraham Lincoln Memorial uh, Museum in Springfield, and you will see that we've always been harsh toward our leaders. Right? Uh, some of the stuff that they said about Abraham Lincoln back in the day was absolutely awful. But so I don't know that we are more critical than we used to be. What I know is that. We, are, we have more public voices of criticism than we've ever had before. 
And a lot of that is because of social media. So now, when before you'd read some criticism in the newspaper or you'd read some criticism in the comics or whatever, now we have social media with hundreds or, or thousands, millions of voices of, of criticism. And here's what I find really interesting about this. Um, I actually wrote about this on social media, ironically, but um, what I find interesting about this is that often we tend to be critical because we don't feel like we're being served well, but sometimes the way that we criticize leads us to continue to not be served well. So I think about my seven-year-old for a minute. Uh, he, there's a video game that he really, really likes to play. And uh, we tend to be pretty strict about his video game time. Uh, I suspect that when Sam gets older, he's going to try to perpetuate this idea that he was raised by Al-Qaeda, you know, that we are just absolutely the regime in his mind, right? Um, so strict about this, but he always wants more time. And so sometimes he's critical and sometimes he complains. And what I have found, and maybe you parents and grandparents will understand this, that the more he does that, the less time he gets. So he's criticizing because he's underserved. But the way he criticizes leads him to continue to be underserved. Think about politics just for a moment. The last 15 years of, 10, 15 years of social media, um, all the criticism and all of that stuff has kind of pushed everybody to their own camps. So we're more divided than we've ever been. And the result of that has been we've stopped talking to each other and so little gets done now in Congress and, and in Washington that the way we have criticized has pushed everybody their, to their camps and we end up being served less. All right, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter to a young pastor named Timothy, and a lot of the letter has to do with leadership. A lot of 1 Timothy just has to do with leadership. And, and the section we're going to look at, in part, Paul addresses his concern about how criticism happens in the church and how if it's not handled well, and he gives us how, what it looks like to handle it well, if it's not handled well, um, really our world and, and, and us as members of the church of God can end up being served uh, less. We can end up losing our focus uh, on what matters most. So let me give you a little background real quick. Today kind of launches our elder selection process. If you want to kind of view a document about what this day is about, you leave these doors, you head to your left, and you'll see our church office, and the document is right there. You can pick one up on your way out. The way this got started was probably about 10 years ago. Uh, we were talking, uh, the leadership team was talking about how we desire to have a strong leadership team now and moving into the future. We're like, there weren't any problems, there weren't any, uh, anything that we were trying to address. We said, we just want to make sure we always have strong leadership at, at Northwest. And one of our leaders at the time said, you know what we should do? is we should do, uh, we're, we're kind of governed by eldership here. I'll talk about that more a little bit later, but we had to do an elder Sunday uh, once a year. Um, and this year we're actually doing two. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more next week because there's a little bit more we wanna cover. But um, I wanna be honest with you, um, I did not love the idea. And the reason for that is that we have so many special Sundays in the church, right? There's Mother's Day, there's Father's Day, Christmas, Easter, all this stuff. I'm like, now we're gonna have like elder Sunday. Um, it, it's, it's an additional kind of special day, um, but, but we really felt like we should move forward with this, and so I went ahead and did it. And what I discovered after about two or three years of doing it is that this is one of the best ideas I've ever had. Um, I'm like, I am so smart, right? Um, and no, it, it's, it's really been life-changing for our, our church, that when, when you look at Northwest, 
I think we have struggled with some of the things we're gonna talk about. I think we've struggled with some of this stuff a lot less because about 10 years ago, we said, we're gonna talk about this every year. We're gonna talk about leadership. We're gonna talk about leadership's relationship to the congregation. Um, we're gonna talk about a lot of this stuff. And uh, I think it's helped us to avoid a lot of problems. So as we go through this every year, there might be a temptation for you to kind of think, I mean, is there problems? Why, why are we addressing this? And I want you to know right up front, we do this every single year. And the reason, and one of the benefits of doing it every year is, no, there are no problems. We, we don't have problems. And I think it's because we talk about it so openly. So I wanna share with you as we get ready to move into 1 Timothy 5, I wanna show you on the screen an Old Testament teaching that Paul is gonna reference. And then you'll, you'll hear in the text as I read it. Here's the Old Testament teaching. It's do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. All right, it's from, the, it's from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's a farming phrase. And what would happen is that you would get your ox uh, kind of uh, ready to go, and they would tread the grain so that it could be ready to be used for wheat or for baking or, or for whatever. And what would happen is, as your ox was treading out the grain, sometimes uh, your ox would want to bend down and eat some of the grain. And most of the farmers were absolutely fine with this. And if the ox wants to eat a little bit of grain, he's working hard for me, he had to eat some of the grain. Some farmers would muzzle the ox and just kind of work them all day in the sun and not allow the ox to eat any of the grain. And the biblical teaching of this in the book of Deuteronomy is very, very simple. God says to his people, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. This ox is working hard for you. This ox is uh, providing food for you. Th this ox is doing a lot of stuff for you. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. If he wants to bend down and eat a little bit while he's working, let him bend down and eat a little bit while he's working. And so this became the Old Testament teaching, uh, the kind of one of the introductory teachings on, hey, you know, don't mistreat animals. Show compassion and consideration and respect to one another, certainly, but also to your animals. And Paul's gonna draw this teaching forward in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 20. He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, and especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So you can kind of see this in the document that you're gonna pick up on your way out. We, we have an elder document about our selection process and how, how we do that. But what you're gonna see is that a lot of what we consider to be qualifications of eldership have most to do in the Bible with the character of the leader the character of the elder. So as you read through that list, you're gonna see things like, it's gonna talk about an elder uh, needs to be self-controlled. An elder needs to be gentle. An elder needs to be not greedy, not quick-tempered, disciplined. Somebody who has demonstrated leadership gifts in his own family and someone uh, who holds to the truth and knows what is good. All of these wonderful ideas that as you read through those kind of scriptural mandates about what an elder is and what an elder looks like, they mostly have to do with inter internal character. And here's why that's true. Uh, because an elder makes so many decisions as they manage the affairs of the church. There are so many decisions and so many situations that need to be addressed that you want to make sure they have the character to do that well. So in other words, like if they're violent 
as they're leading in the church, people are going to be hurt by what they say and what they do as an elder, if, if an elder's violent. If they're gossipy, um, that information is not going to be handled properly and things are going to go badly. If they don't know the truth, they're not going to have a foundation to stand on by which to make decisions. If they don't know how to manage well, they're not going to lead in a loving or kind way. So Paul starts out our text saying, if you see someone not living up to that standard that he's laid out in the previous chapters, if you see someone that doesn't have that internal character or there's a sin or there's uh, some sort of false teaching or whatever, here's Paul's point. That needs to be addressed. Right? If you see something in a leader, a character issue, a false teaching issue, that it, this is not an anti-criticism message. Right? That is a criticism or a critique that needs to be addressed. But Paul does give us a way of doing that. There's two big teachings here. The first one is he says that you are to approach the rest of the eldership with two or three witnesses. Two or three. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm good at math. All right, so two or three witnesses. And this ensures that you just haven't gotten sideways with someone that you're not just seeing something that nobody else sees. So he says, if two or three people agree with you, that is something to move forward with because we all know how easy it is just in relationships and living with one another. Uh, it's easy to get sideways with someone and all of a sudden you think you see something, but nobody else sees it. Paul says, no, um, two or three witnesses. And then second of all, you'll, you'll notice that in the text uh, that we read, it needs to be handled publicly. So in a previous church, in another church, um, I knew of an elder that had an affair on his wife. A leader there had an affair on his wife. He committed adultery, and he needed to be removed as an elder, which was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, because he was in a public leadership position, he didn't just get to go away quietly. Right? There ended up being a congregational meeting to kind of share what happened as much as could be shared. But a public leader commits a public sin. It requires a public response. And so Paul's saying, keep everybody aware of, of what has happened. Uh, and, and, and sometimes those things do happen. Maybe you heard about, them, heard about them in another church or whatever, where a character issue or some sin or something like that creeps into the leadership and needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed publicly. Now, this is by and large what, not what Paul is talking about. He wanted to give us kind of a way of dealing with, if you see character, if you see false teaching, if you see something, that is a legitimate criticism to have. But then he reminds us of this Old Testament teaching. He says, but don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Remember our ox from earlier, right? I, I really, I feel uncomfortable. I've shared this kind of principle before and I always feel uncomfortable comparing leadership to ox, but it's the Bible's word, so I, I just you know, need, need to use these words. Do you remember the ox from earlier? Right? He's treading the grain. He's preparing it. And then there's this owner that muzzles him. There's this owner that kind of mistreats him while he's trying to do the work. And, and Paul says what happens in some churches is that they're looking to the ones that are um, kind of God has charged with directing the affairs of the church and they're unnecessarily criticizing them or accusing them without witnesses or mistreating them or spreading gossip about them. And their criticism, in, in Paul's example here, their criticism has nothing to do with a gospel issue or a character issue. Um, they're simply attacking or criticizing their leaders. And here's what I know about Decatur, Illinois, is I know that a lot of you um, you stayed away from, a ch from church for a long time. Your last church, this happened, and you stayed away from it for a long time, and then you've kind of been creeping your way back in. I talked to a lot of people that come from churches where this was just kind of the, 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 the basic operating procedure. 
is that kind of an anti-leadership, anti-eldership, anti-staff, whatever kind of background. And some of you got burned out on that and hurt by that. And it's been a long time since you've been at church again. And I want you to know, part of what we do here, we teach Northwest 101. And one of the kind of principles I walk through in Northwest 101 is that one of our guiding principles at this church is that we strive toward the unity of the spirit. We work toward it. We don't just think that's an abstract concept. Oh yeah, we ought to be unified. We work toward it. We work to work out our differences. We work to make sure those don't become bigger than, than they should. And I'm really proud of that, that there, there isn't any of that going on here. But I know, I know just from my, my conversations with people that a lot of people have been hurt by this very issue. A church split, a church blow up, a leader they love just being attacked needlessly. I know a lot of people come from that background and uh, I, I, want you to, I want you to know that I, I feel bad that, that happened to you because my church no longer exists, my, the church I grew up in. My church no longer exists from this very thing. And so those of you that have been with me here for 12 years, you know how, how passionate I am about this. Because I don't want to see anybody hurt by their church over this issue. Right? When we, we are commanded by scripture to pursue the unity of the spirit, I see a lot of churches that just get fractured and, and they're angry and they attack and a lot of people get hurt by that. And sometimes it does happen pu- publicly, right? Some of you, you know these churches that are in constant turmoil and chaos. One group's waging war against another group. So there's church splits and those churches never really grow or flourish or anything like that. I find that in most, uh, most other churches. So some churches it's publicly and those churches are usually kind of a mess, but often it's private. It's a gathering of, of two or three people that are kind of questioning motives and speaking poorly about their church and um, spreading gossip that may or may not be, be true. And here's what I want you to know is I have found in my life that I think that can be every bit as damaging as a public church fight. Uh, I remember years ago, Cheryl and I uh, got into a relationship. This is even before Northwest. This is going way back where just kind of our thing with this, these friends became like complaining about church at, at the time. And, you know, we were evaluating and criticizing, I would have done it this way or I wouldn't have done it that way. And, um, and we just kind of got into this mode where we, where we were doing that. And it ended up turning pretty uh, toxic. And here's what I would say is I found that was more damaging than I could have ever realized. Here's what happened to me. I stopped being excited about my church. I stopped being enthusiastic about new ideas. I became suspicious of the motives of leaders that I loved and care about, cared about. And it can be very damaging to church when, when you get in groups of, of two or three to complain. Those negative ideas can develop negative attitudes and pretty soon it is, it's affecting you week after week. So we, what we did is we restricted that friendship. Uh, one day we were at a conference and we kind of looked at each other. Somebody challenged us on it and we kind of looked at each other and said, this is not good. This is not good. We're constantly critiquing. We're constantly criticizing. And I find, you know, I don't want to call any of you out at all, but... This sometimes can happen on the car on the way home too, right? <laughs> if you want to get into a really, really small group where it's like you turn to each other and you're like, what do you think of today, right? I know Cheryl and I have kind of fallen into that too. We get in the car, what do you think of today? And I'm like, the sermon stunk. <laughs> I tell you right now, the sermon stunk, you know, that, that sort of thing. But you kind of get in and you get into an evaluative mode, you know? And some of that's okay. You know, somebody's got to be evaluating what happens around here. So, you know, so, some of it's okay, but some of it can kind of like, like turn a little toxic and it can turn a little negative. 
And it can, it, critiquing can turn into complaining that can turn into kind of a bad thing. And, and l- listen, I don't want to meddle. And I, I know I'm, I'm getting into meddling now. But if you're like me, you know what I realized when we, when we do some of that? I got two little ears, what, four, two times two, so four. Um, I got four little ears sitting in the seat right behind me. And they're hearing the way we talk about our church. I remember uh, a friend of mine one time said, you know what we used to have for lunch every Sunday, Steve? I said, what's that? He said, roast preacher, right? <laughs> we, we, we'd get together every Sunday, we'd have roast preacher, you know? And, uh, and I, I, get, I get some of that, but I, I want you to know, all I want to say to you, and I, this flows out of some counseling that I've done through the years, is that your kids are listening to you. And I know that you feel the same way that I do. I want Sam and Lila to grow up loving the church and loving and, and, and wanting to sacrifice for their church. So I don't want them hearing you know, like little critiques that I have of conversations or whatever and kind of walking away with this attitude like the church isn't this wonderful, beautiful place because it is. Um, and, and so here's what, and I think this is just true everywhere. And I don't know, um, I thought and thought about this because I wanted to try to give you an explanation for it, but I think this is just true in a way that it's never been true really before, and I don't know why it is, but it just is. Um, we love to criticize our leaders. I don't know why, that, why it's more than it was 10, 15 years ago, but it is. You see it in the political world right now? Does anybody see it in the political world right now, right? <laughs> you see it at your work? Does anybody love the boss at work? <laughs> Right, you, you see it in the, in the work. You see it in your family, any parents of teenagers, right? They're probably critical of you, right? Your, your kids are probably critical of you. And, and fortunately, you see it in many churches. Um, I went to a conference over, over the summer and I just, my heart kind of broke. And, and part of the reason it breaks is I know that I'm not in this situation, but I see a lot of pastors and elders and leaders that um, are really discouraged and ready to give up and feeling and feeling, feeling uh, like they, they, they can't win. And so, and I think that one of the reasons this happens in most churches, what Paul's talking about here, I would kind of put it all under one banner. Um, some churches just kind of develop a negative DNA. We're not talking about that. In most churches, what this looks like is um, a disagreement over decisions. That you've got the, the elders, Paul says, direct the affairs of the church. They have to make a lot of decisions. They have to make them sometimes very quickly. And so some, a lot of times it's not a spiritual issue or a gospel issue. A lot of times criticism in the church is a, I didn't like that decision. And it leads me to be critical. Now, I want to share with you a little secret, all right? I've been here 12 years, all right? So I've worked with a couple different elderships in that 12 years and uh, in my full-time time here. And here's the secret. Don't tell anybody I said this, all right? I have not agreed with every decision every eldership has made in that 12 years. Don't tell anybody. That was nervous laughter, all right? Everybody knows. You know that, right? Nobody agrees with all the decisions. But here's what I've learned. I've learned to trust the process. That God has ordained eldership to oversee and direct the affairs of the church. And here's what I want you to know about what happens as decisions are made. And and this is what I mean by I trust the process, is I know that when when, when a decision gets presented to our eldership, I know it is prayed about. And you need to know that too. In that room, there is prayer over that decision. Whatever it happens to be, big or small, 
There's prayer. Sometimes, there's, if it's a really big decision, sometimes there's a lot of prayer that goes over that for a long period of time. Some, on a couple of occasions, we've asked you guys to fast with us. You know, we're like, we're, we're going to fast over this. So, so I know that there's a lot of prayer, and I know that there's a lot of conversation. And there's a lot of bantering about, about ways to make the decision better, way, ways to kind of move it forward. And here's what I've learned to trust because of those two things, because of conversation and prayer, I've learned to trust the movement of the Holy Spirit in our eldership. Because I believe God has ordained this. I know about our elder board. I know they pray. I know they have conversation. I know they love this church. And so I've just learned to trust the process that this is how the Holy Spirit is moving. And you know, what I, you know who I've learned to distrust in this? Is me as an individual. Because God's ordained purpose uh, for, for the church is not that Steve Higgs makes every decision, thank the good Lord, right? The process is designed that the eldership, the elder board directs the affairs of the church. They, they are leaders in this place and they pray and they talk and they fast and they do all this stuff and then they arrive at a decision. So even if it's one that's where I'm like, I think I would have decided that different, I just learned to trust the process and not to trust myself. Because the process for decision-making in the church is not me or you or anybody else for that matter gets their way 100% of the time. Nobody gets their way 100% of the time and that is a good thing. That is a really good thing, all right? And this carries, according to Paul, this carries really, really high stakes. The way churches deal with this issue, elders and the way the congregation relates to the elders when it comes to decision-making and when it comes to leadership is really high stakes because here's what Paul would say. There is grain that needs to be treaded. There is work that needs to be done. And Paul's concern in the way, he, he addresses this in other passages as well. Paul's concern for the way elders and leaders in general are treated in churches, his concern is first of all for the work of the elder, all right? For the work of the elder. That when an elder is criticized consistently and constantly, and I've seen this, you know, like I say, we're not struggling with this here, but I've seen this in other churches. What happens in that church is a couple things. One is the leader becomes discouraged and there's a high turnover, right? So what you have in some churches is that every couple of years they get a brand new elder board because a, 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 group, a group of elders will say, I'm out, right? I, I, I feel like God's equipped me to lead, I love this church. I'm not doing this anymore, <laughs> right? And so every three to five years, there'll be a huge turnover rate. And so brand new board, brand new ideas. And so what you see in those churches is no ideas really get implemented because you're constantly turning over. This sometimes happens at the senior minister level too. Uh, that, that some of you may know churches like this where every three years or so, the senior, minister, the senior minister leaves and a, a whole new guy comes in with new ideas and there, no momentum really begins to take hold uh, be, because of that. So he's concerned about that, I think. And then when leaders are criticized, overly criticized in the church, here's the other thing I've seen happen. They become hesitant to make decisions. Everybody does when they're criticized. They become hesitant to make decisions and they stop making um, decisions. And here's what happens. In, in a lot of churches, the church becomes less served by the way they leverage their criticism. And so we're criticizing because we don't feel served. 
but the way we criticize leads us to be less served because now you have an elder board or a leader board or whatever the case may be that is afraid to make decisions because they don't want to be criticized. So he's concerned about the work of the elder and then he's concerned about the mission of the church that when the mission of the church should be reaching new people, introducing Jesus to our community, growing our ministry, the storyline in some churches becomes this. What are we gonna do about the group that's angry about music? What are we gonna do about the group that's angry about carpet? Or what are we gonna do about the group that's angry about whatever? And do you see the loss of mission there? That the mission's supposed to be, how can we introduce Jesus to this community? How can we introduce Jesus to lost people who without Christ are, are gonna be separated from him for all eternity? How can we introduce him to them? How can we get them in a room where they can meet Jesus? How can we get them in a room where they can hear about his word? Instead, the, 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 the storyline becomes, we gotta do something about, about, about this group. So let me put this on the screen for you. Here's what I, I've said this to you for 12 years. In a church conflict, there's more at stake than me being right. What's at stake is the mission. There's more at stake than me being right. What's at stake is the mission. So I read, um, I read quite a few leadership books and I actually uh, enjoy this topic every year when, when it rolls around. I, I know I said I didn't wanna do this at the beginning. I've really learned to love this Sunday to talk to you about leadership. So I read a lot of leadership books and there's a leadership principle in church world that you will see repeated again and again and again in almost every book you come across. And here it is on the screen for you. As the leaders go, so goes the church. All right, that's the leadership principle. As the leader goes, so goes the church. So leaders cannot lead people to a place they've never been. I think this is just kind of common sense. You can't lead someone somewhere you've never been. So in theory, a church will never grow beyond the capacity of the leaders of that church. I have found there's another theory that I have never heard talked about in, in leadership world. But this is just kind of my observation, and I really believe this is true. And here's the leadership principle that I think ought to become just as common as the first one, and here it is. As a congregation treats its leaders so goes the leader, right? So I believe you can make a case that as a congregation treats its leaders, so goes the church. You treat leaders well, they lead well, they're full of confidence, they're full of energy. A church treats leaders poorly, they are full of fear, they're full of anxiety, they give up, they don't make decisions. So as the congregation treats the leader, so goes the leader. So the good news about this all of us, uh, for all of us is that we have an opportunity here as a church to love and encourage our leaders, our elders. Um, so I wanna ask you, do you pray for our elders? Do, do you pray for our elders? Um, do you encourage our elders? Do you cheerlead our elders? Um, I, want you to, I want you to think about that. Like I said, no major problems right now, things are going well. But here's what I want you to think about. Is some of what Paul's talking about here, is it happening in small ways? in your home, with friends, in small group or Sunday school, where in these small ways, you're taught, doing what I described Cheryl and I doing that in that season of our life at a previous church where all of a sudden we just find that all the time we're like criticizing things. We're, 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 we're being critical of everything. And here's what I wanna encourage you with is man, cheerlead them, champion them, encourage them. You'll be amazed by what happens, not just in the leader, but in you. You'll be amazed by what happens. And so, um, and so Paul's concern is over the work. When he says, do not muzzle the ox 
while he's treading out the grain, Paul's concern is for the work. It's the work of the elder and it's the work of the church. And the work of the church is, it's guys, it's just too important to not get done. It's just too important. People, you, you know my heart on this. People need to know that God loves them and doesn't hate them. They need to know that. People need to know that God sent his son to die for us so that our sins could be forgiven. People need to know that they can spend eternity in heaven with God. The, way, the, work, the work of the church is too important to spend even a minute on unnecessarily criticizing or engaging in disagreement with, with, with uh, elders and leaders. Now, remember what Paul said is that there are times where criticism needs to be addressed. We, we get that, right? There are times where false teaching or character issues or whatever, yeah, that you gotta address that stuff. But, Paul, but Paul's point is, man, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Let's go, go, go. Let's introduce people to Jesus. Let's introduce people to our church. Let's make a difference for them in this life and in the next. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we wanna thank you uh, for this morning. And uh, I wanna thank you for our eldership and our leadership. I, I uh, love those guys so much. And um, uh, you've really blessed this church. Um, but Lord, right now, as we get ready to transition to communion, we wanna thank you for Jesus who is our example of leadership. Uh, he, he teaches us what leadership is all about, what self-sacrifice is all about. So may we, every leader in this room, who is every person in this room, every person's a leader, may we learn from Jesus as we celebrate his sacrifice, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. May we be like him in big ways and small in the way that we lead. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of a communion together where we are, what I said in the prayer is exactly what I meant, that we're going to, we're going to celebrate our leader, um, Jesus Christ, and the difference that he has made so that our sins could be forgiven. You're going to find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood that he went to the cross to pay for our sins so that everyone who believes in him, uh, uh, all, everyone that believes in him, uh, can have life, can have life eternal. And so we want to just remember that right now, celebrate that. And I want you to think about the difference his leadership has made in, in your life and in the life of your family. Um, I've told you this story before, but man, without Jesus, the Higgs side of my family, it is alcoholics as far as the eye can see. Alcoholics as far as the eye can see. But one day, one person in my family met Jesus Christ and an entire family tree line has been altered forever. So I want you to think about the leadership of Jesus in your life and in the life of your family. I want you to celebrate that because he's made such a difference.